0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Additive Snack. I'm your host, Fabian Ahlerfeld, and I'm here to inspire and educate you on your additive manufacturing journey. On today's episode, we'll be talking about one of the most exciting topics in the world of 3D printing. We're entering a golden era for 3D printable metal materials. And that means that manufacturers in many industries will be able to create things they've never been able to create before. So this week's amazing guest is my colleague, Dr. Ankit Saharan, the senior manager of metals technology at EOS. And today, Ankit and I will discuss the past, the present, and the future of metal AM materials, with the future taking center stage. That's because a new class of 3D principle superalloys, metal matrix composites, and high entropy alloys as well as pure metals, will enable incredible new applications for the space industry, the semiconductor industry, the electronics industry, and many other verticals. And if you're wondering what the heck a metal matrix composite or high entropy alloy is, don't you worry. Ankit will explain what these materials are and what they mean in terms of exciting new applications. Ankit, welcome to Additive Snack. Oh, it's good to be here. So Ankit, We can't really talk about additive manufacturing metal materials without going a bit back in time. As we all know, Metal AM has evolved significantly over the past two decades. But how did it all start? How did we get to the first additive manufacturing process that was actually capable of printing metals?
1: No, absolutely. I think uh, it's important to touch back on history as well. And if you look in the past, early 90s, We were talking about CO2 lasers back then, and we were not really melting powders completely. We were essentially sintering them. And we called it dual-phase sintering, where we had dual-phase powders in the material. So one with a higher melting point, one with a lower melting point. And what normally happened was the powder with the lower melting point used to melt first, kind of forming a matrix around the higher melting point particles. So that's essentially how the metal additive laser powder bed fusion started and uh, in the beginning itself we just had uh we had we didn't have suppliers that were you know making powders for additive they were making powders uh, for other technologies and we were basically using what was left as a byproduct or whatever we could scrap from some of the other processes like cold spray or thermal spray and you know use it in a process uh it's come a long way since then since we now have a multiple suppliers who are dedicatedly providing material for additive so it's been a sea change in just a few decades and it's nice to see where the industry is heading
0: yeah that's super interesting and in the end that explains also how the the wording for a bunch of these technologies evolved as well right what we back then called dmls or direct metal laser sintering is now a actual melting technology what happens so i mean we're now in 2021 we're out of the sintering technologies where uh, now additive manufacturing is used as a serial AM production technology, what enabled the material portfolio to grow into where it is today?
1: No, you bring up an interesting point, Fabian. Like uh, for metal additive manufacturing, one of the most coined words was DMLS, and typically it stood for direct metal laser sintering. Exactly. uh, If you remember. And now I think uh, sometimes I did a webinar a few years ago And then I changed the S to Schmelzen, which is basically melt in German, I guess, right?
0: That is very true. Yeah, I can confirm that. And
1: I think uh, marketing team saw it like that was cool, but not still catchy. So they kind of made it to a solidification now. It's now called direct metal laser solidification. Okay. Um, it's, it's, It's what kind of like, sintering is good. It's from a technology standpoint. But unless you're completely melting metals, you still don't hit a plethora of applications, which we are touching today. So if we're talking about back in the day, we were just using CO2 lasers, and you know they have with the wavelength and the power output that was there at that point of time, we just couldn't fully melt metal materials. Now with the fiber lasers, when they came into play, and now they've kind of you know grown and you know it's a more much more stable technology with many more suppliers like IPG Photonics, um, Coherent. And others, um, it's it's become a much more commodity technology in the additive space, and because of that, we have new higher power lasers, which are not which are not only stable, but we can now have multi-mode lasers. We can change the spot size. We can go from Gaussian to top hat and donut shape, and so on and so forth. And what this has enabled is to actually unlock a new potential of materials. So early 2000s, I'm still talking about in the past. Uh, the first couple of materials that got a crack at it were titanium alloys and cobalt-chrome alloys. Like, they were the first ones that actually uh, started with that. And everyone knows the famous uh, cobalt-chrome case, which was a fuel nozzle. And it's how, it's how that kind of laser unlocked that potential. And then we started early in the decade, early of the last decade, which was the 2012, 2013. Now we're talking about canals and nickel super alloys. So we're just seeing these constant growth of materials up and up and up, and we now have aluminums, and now we are now exploring the space into coppers now, uh, and now it's becoming more challenging. It's, okay, does the current laser technology that we have in the current wavelength is that suffice, or do we need green lasers, blue lasers to actually even unlock more materials? So
0: the future is exciting. Okay, so how many alloys are on the market today that can be 3D printed?
1: uh i would say there it's a difficult to put a number on it because every day the number keeps on changing every day somebody comes up with a new material okay um what i know from eos uh within our portfolio what we offer are about 30 to 34 different kinds of materials i'm not talking about processes i'm just talking about materials uh you can actually print using uh, this technology however if i'm looking outside eos you know our ecosystem our partners, our competitors and everyone else, it can easily be more than 60 materials that are available that can be done using laser powder.
0: That's incredible. And you mentioned processes and processes, of course, are uh, such a significant and important part of additive manufacturing. What's the impact of process parameters in the field of enabling new materials for additive manufacturing, but also enabling applications uh, by using and adjusting these process parameters?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think uh, materials and processes go hand in hand, uh, no matter how much you kind of, you know, try to uh, separate them, but they always go hand in hand. Uh, what's interesting to know is that even though, let's say we're talking about titanium material, let's take an example, uh, grade five or grade 23, anyone, uh, that material is available if uh, from our portfolio in 30 microns, 60 microns, 40 microns, 80 microns. And, you know, for other competitors, we've got even more layer thicknesses and more options available. So if you look, take a look at whole, we still, I would say, you know, about 36 materials, let's say, from our portfolio. But if you look at the number of processes available, you're talking about 200, more than 200 processes that are just available to actually uh, handle these materials. And what's important to note is that each of these processes fill a specific application and fill a specific demand. Like in some cases, uh, early on, we came out with, let's say, uh, finer layer thicknesses, let's say a 30 micron in titanium, which was used uh, primarily just to ensure that you have higher repeatability, you have higher layer, uh, higher mechanical strength, you have better feature resolution and stuff like that to 60 microns, where you're going faster, you have a better business case, and uh, you might be sacrificing a bit on the surface finish, depending on the material, not always. Uh, but that's always the trade off that you do, and so you there's always an, an in, there's always an assumption a rule of thumb that okay, if I'm going slower, then I'm kind of going more towards forging applications, and if I'm going faster, I'm going more towards the cast side and now we're coming up even with hybrid technologies where you you know you can mix these processes in one part. so you've got one big part where you need. To go really slow because you've got really thin walls, fine feature resolution, pans, so on and so forth. Whatever the case is, you can slow down the process at that level. And when you are kind of doing a bulk scan where it's you no know, not really feature resolution specific, you're less sensitive to that. You can go actually faster.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, from our previous conversations, and we've known each other for a while now, Ankit, I always remember you talking about you know the whole universe of alloys, where you always say you know there's Uh, more than a thousand known alloys to men and additive manufacturing as you just mentioned you know just unlocked 30 to 60 of these alloys now what are certain processes that uh, you consider when you work with clients to develop new materials or new custom processes for applications that really uh, allows you to as you just mentioned change the material properties as you go what what are the key processes that you touch on uh, when you do those development projects?
1: That's a very good question, Fabian. And, and you hit it absolutely right. There are more than 1,000 known alloys to man, and we barely scratched the surface. Like yeah. 36 and 60, we're not even hitting three figures here. So uh, we're, we're, we're very much in a growing phase in this space right now. And uh, when we talk to customers, they are coming up in most cases with a part already in mind they have the capability to you know design for that they have got some some freedom to design but in many cases that's where most of the freedom ends and they cannot do and you know they've got a material that's already been used for that specific application and they cannot substitute that so in some cases where that material is readily available already in additive for example in Canal 718 or 625 or ti64 grade 5 grade 23 that's an easy solution. But in some cases where we're coming up with 6061, 7075, aluminums, those kind of materials, it's not an easy solution. And there we have a lot of convincing to do to the customers like 6061 I know there's got tons of information there, but that material is just not available in additive because of technical challenges it presents in the process. And because of that, now we have to, uh, education again is a very key part of here. So we have to really work with the customer, educate, and show him how a substitute material might not only give, might not only you know cover all the bases property-wise to what they have right now, but in some cases might even exceed that. You know, pro, uh, life cycle of the component might exceed uh, quite a lot, kind of a, gaining that cost advantage of the customer and convincing them to actually switch materials. But there's always a uh, inherent resistance that we still always run into is like, hey, this is a new material. We've never seen this before. And it's just going to take time. I think there's no way around it. Additive materials like everything else have to prove their have to prove their worth in the market. And I think with more and more data coming out, it's it's getting there,
0: okay. so let's let's stay with materials for one more second in the in the current state. So, The industries that are growing the fastest when it comes to additive manufacturing, serial production is, of course, the aerospace industry, space by itself, uh, medical, the automotive industry is pushing heavily for additive manufacturing. What are the most common alloys in each of those industries? And where do you see some uh, potential gaps that these industries are not utilizing as of today?
1: So medical industry is very titanium heavy, I would say almost all the applications if not well most of the applications if not all are covered by grade 23 titanium mm-hmm. um that's what they go for and that's what they traditionally dealt with so um their new titanium process is coming out we're talking to uh, the medical space uh, about new materials like nickel titanium which is a shape memory alloy nitinol could be a functional side um, okay. we're we're talking about uh, new so, new new kinds of coating processes on those existing metal side. So there's there's interest in the medical side, uh, but it, since it's a very heavily regulated industry, it's not easy to break through that ceiling uh, as much as it could be easier on the automotive side or the tooling side. So and and same goes for the aerospace as well. So if aerospace is very in canal titanium and aluminum heavy they use a wider variety of materials than the medical does Uh, but uh, the space industry which you just mentioned you know that's who's driving low copper alloys like they want to go really hard and design injectors with uh liquid jacket cooling or regenerative cooling concepts where the whole chamber actually gets hotter than the melting point of the material itself which is quite astounding to if you think about it Uh, That a material is able to withstand temperatures more than its melting point. And the way you do that is through regenerative cooling. And that's what the additive unlocks, you know, the material space. And new materials are coming for sure. Uh, We have NASA just a few years ago uh, did the GRCA 42 and 84 They're coming out of the Glenn Research Center. Uh, there's a copper chromium zirconium that just recently got available on uh, laser powder bed fusion platforms, which performs, uh, which is kind of in the same category of performance. And uh, we're talking about new alloys, 738, that's a, that are coming online. Uh, we're talking about Inconel line 39, um, that just came online as well. And then we're looking at turbo machinery, which are also very heavy Inconel users and they're just starting to utilize and understand the potential of these additive alloys and we are also learning with them like we at EOS we're of kind of industry agnostic so you know we don't pretend to be experts at every industry actually in none of the industries at all um we'd like to gain that knowledge and see you know where the market is pulling in terms of materials
0: that's that's a really good good comment you just made and i think we are approaching a tipping point in additive manufacturing right now right where uh, already, we see some industries getting into a position where additive manufacturing can actually not be removed of the supply chain anymore, because it produces components that cannot be produced with any conventional manufacturing technology anymore. Uh, I think Siemens Energy is a really good example. We had uh, Marcus Seibold on the podcast, and he was talking about how Siemens has ran more than uh, one million operating hours on their uh, on their on their gas turbines with additive manufacturing components. Uh, he's also talking about how you know, they will move into a digital inventory uh, within the next couple of years, and you know even in the medical industry, as you just mentioned, a significant amount of hip implants are being produced uh, additively. So I'm interested to hear from you: Where are we going from here? You just mentioned in the recent years we've accelerated uh, new material developments. Uh, the industry is bringing new materials online, like copper, chromium, zirconium, uh, for uh, for new markets. What's the next barrier that we're going to break through when it comes to additive manufacturing materials?
1: I think we've penetrated or we've touched almost every industry vertical that uses manufacturing technology, you know, by far. One sector I think we're just recently getting into would be semiconductor and consumer electronics. I think uh, that's a very understated sector and that's got a huge potential from additive aspects. If if I'm looking from the semiconductor standpoint or chip manufacturing, they've got huge deposition and vapor chambers that sometimes make perfect sense for additive, and uh, and they're just looking into this right now and they're just catching up. And the amount of volumes associated, and these are all high value components, and not as high volume as automotive, but still high volume enough. It just lands in that sweet spot where additive actually makes perfect sense. So we're talking about uh, in cases where. Uh, New materials are getting unlocked. We're talking about composites. Uh, There's a company called Elementum 3D. Uh, Many of you might have heard about them, but they do metal matrix composites. Um, They're kind of unlocking a whole new application space with that. What does that mean?
0: What are metal matrix composites? Can you explain that? Sure. So metal matrix
1: composite are basically composite materials, and you basically have these hard inclusions, ceramic particles embedded within a metal matrix. So think about as a, I'm, I'm, you're in like a whole metal body and you've got like spots of ceramics throughout, throughout that body. And what it gives you is that it gives you better strength. It gives you better toughness. It gives you better hardness values, which ceramics are more known for. Uh, But you do sacrifice on um, elongations, you know, ductility, which metals are known for. So that's, that's a new class of materials uh, that's coming up. And I think uh, it's been around for a while. A lot of, lot of players in the industry have at one point or the other dealt with them. And uh, at least they've come across with them. And that's going to unlock a new industrial space. What I'm talking about the semiconductor industry, what they're now fueling towards is single elements. We're not talking about alloys. Yes, alloys are important to them as well. But now we're talking about single elements. Pure elements like nickel pure aluminum and 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 materials like that, which we've never had the demand for, like who would want a pure nickel or pure aluminum part like that's that's what they want because for them, alloys present a unique challenge that you know depending on what the alloy composition is, that may or may not be useful and might you know negatively impact their process because now that specific element is going to you know uh aid the corrosion corrosive environment that they're out that you know that they're present in so single elements kind of element alloys or single element sorry, materials not alloys uh present a huge advantage here now we have got two other materials which i think are absolutely great that we've never that are going to be big and i think that's where we're talking about added alloys that are you know made for additive manufacturing made for this technology Um, I think the number one, the first one is going to come out as a bulk metallic glass. So bulk metallic glass is like an amorphous metal. So all metals are, you know, crystalline in structure. They've got a regular crystal order. But uh, think about a molten metal and then you cool it down super rapidly. I'm talking about millions of degrees per second cooling. So what it does is it just kind of locks that material in that microstructure and gives much higher strength and gives that glass-like properties to the metal. Uh, and I think additive is uniquely suited for that because you know, laser powder bed fusion is what essentially is rapid heating, rapid cooling. Talking about bulk metallic glasses, we've got major players like NASA, Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, Doug Hoffman is a big name in that field that who's been doing research in bulk metallic glass quite uh, for quite some time, and I think he's also been successful in doing it through additive. Mm-hmm. Uh, another new class of alloys or materials we're thinking about is high entropy alloys. So anyone who doesn't know what these are very, very crudely to explain what what essentially a high entropy alloy is. So so whenever we talk about aluminum, you know, Ti-64 or Inconel, they're very nickel heavy, you know, nickel and iron make most of the composition. Or if I'm talking about titanium, titanium makes most of the composition of the material. And then you have, you know, small amount of vanadium, small amount of aluminum, small amount of this and small amount of that. So those are traditional alloys. Your high entropy alloys are basically, you know, four or five alloys or metal materials mixed together in equal composition. Okay. There are no majority, or you know, titanium is not heavy. It's not titanium alloy. It's not a nickel alloy. It's a high entropy alloy. That's what it's called. So you could have. What's the
0: benefit of that?
1: The benefit of that is that you have high strength, and it has a very good chance of giving you high strength to weight ratios. Um, you can design alloys to a specific application that has never been done for. Um, it's, it's a new field and it's exciting. And I'm personally excited about that because we see researchers from different universities, different startups coming out with, uh, with different kind of materials and high entropy. And I think that just kind of unlocks. Now you're not playing with, you know, one candy. If I'm looking at a candy shop. You know, I'm not taking a candy cane or a gum... I'm not taking five candy canes and one gummy bear and macing together. I've got like a whole candy store now in front of me and I can pick and choose and, you know, mash them together. It's just a very exciting space for a material science engineer to be in right now.
0: Yeah, and you you sound very excited too. And I think what's, what's super interesting is to also remind ourselves now, you know, you you we talked about the thousand uh, alloys that have been developed in the history of humanity. And now you're talking about new alloys, and some of them, even just being able to uh, unlock by of manufacturing, just based on the pure uh, process itself. Now, I think one thing that uh, many listeners are interested in is how do I choose a material and a process? Right? I think a lot of, and you t- I touched on that based on that earlier. You know, engineers have known certain alloys and certain materials for for all their life and all their careers. And now uh, you mentioned, don't always think about substitution. How do I approach an existing application with an existing material? And how do I wrap my head around the new opportunities that additive manufacturing offers me?
1: So I I personally call it performance over substitution. So when we looking at about materials and application standpoint, um, sometimes the reason to ask the designers is why, is this material chosen? And you know, it could be legacy, and it's perfectly okay. You know, that's mostly why most of the materials are designed in such a way because, you know they were legacy uh, material choices from that standpoint. But it has to be realized,, you know, that you have to open your eyes to other material options available. Um, we're talking about in cases where uh, we have a new material like Scalmoloy, for example. It's, a, it's an alloy that never existed before the additive technology came into being. Or if I'm talking about other alloys from Adaloy, from NanoAl, or from other, you know, there are a number of different companies out there kind of, you know, making these alloys. So one really has to ask that question is that given the performance of these alloys, can I actually, you know, substitute them because they're better performing? And in my case, I would always encourage the customers to, you know, really take a look at that. I never say, you know, it's a one-on-one substitution. There's always, there are no free lunches in this world. You've got to pay a, pay a price somewhere. Um, in some cases, the alloys could be more expensive or you could have a slower, uh, you know, process parameters because, you know, increasing your cost per part from that standpoint. But take a look at the whole situation and not just the material composition. That's that's one of the key ones to actually see and and actually look at what are you getting the benefit out of choosing the more traditional material. If that material is not available. Can you actually unlock a better performing materials, and can that actually give you a better performance? I understand many listeners from the regulatory side are going to say, "Oh, that's not going to be possible because it's going to be too much of a regulatory hurdle. But my, always, my humble opinion, the thing is that at least we have to try. Like you know, if we never do it, this would never happen.
0: Yeah exactly exactly and somebody has to push push the industry forward and you know we had Mohsen and Saifi also on the podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago and you know what's encouraging is that there are more than 60 uh, standards currently being developed uh, from the regulatory uh, committees that yeah will also as as he mentioned unlock some of these new new opportunities uh, also i think something that you said which is very important to me uh, personally is uh, the field of education. Right? I think educating yourself when you said it uh, perfectly and familiarizing yourself with uh, not just the restriction that you have but the opportunities that additive manufacturing allows yourself uh, to, to go after, I think is a crucial step of a successful additive manufacturing project. And as you said, you know, new materials will drive applications and not the applications. So I love your statement, performance over substitution. It's definitely something that uh, people should ingrain into the decision-making process. The one thing I want to touch base on lastly is economics of scale. So additive manufacturing as of today is still a minor piece of the additive manufacturing industry. How do you think uh, these new developments that you just described will uh, drive the growth of additive manufacturing and the industry as a as a whole.
1: You mentioned a very key point, Fabian: uh, economies of scale, and the only way to do that is drop in cost per part, either drop in the cost per part or kind of increase functionality of the parts. Where I'm not talking about one part, but I'm looking at you know a full subassembly where I've kind of you know combined them into one piece together. So that's something that's very important, uh, in my opinion, to take a look at. Um, I don't know what the technology holds, to be honest. Like, you know, it's very difficult. The technology has been so changing so fast that it's difficult to predict what's gonna happen in five years or 10 years. Like two, three years, yeah, you can probably stably predict it, but what's gonna happen in five or 10 years is difficult. What, one thing we can always predict is the cost of the part is going to become down, it's going to become cheaper. That's all we can, I think everyone across the competition, across the whole additive landscape, everyone would agree on, Yes, the cost per part would hopefully come down. And that's just not in terms of becoming, uh, you know, having more material choices or more processes, but also better in terms of hardware side of things. Like we're talking about, we already have multiple lasers, but we now can go into, you know, now instead of multiple lasers, we're talking about, can we go into the concepts of area printing, volume printing, that's going to really enable some of these applications unlock and, you know, really grow, how we can actually manufacture maybe one day, fingers crossed, millions of parts and not just thousands of parts in the production line. So, so that's what uh, what I think we should be aiming for. And and I still feel that from a materials perspective, it's you're absolutely one hundred percent right. It's a materials driving applications. It's a very exciting field to be in. The materials whole landscape there was a huge explosion back in during the World War II and, you know, back at the space race between mm-hmm. the United States and the Soviet Union. A whole new materials come up. A lot of government money was funded in and funneled in. And kind of you have aluminums that came off as a material of choice back in World War II to new kinds of materials, uh, ceramics, and other refractory alloys that became into the, during the space race. And now we're seeing the same thing happening right now. Um, we're just at the cusp of it. And it's just not right now us. It's basically now we've got much better tools at our disposal like machine learning, artificial intelligence that we never had before to be enable us to actually not only iterate faster in terms of material composition, but also be able to see, predict what they are going to give us before we even make these materials physically. So that's okay. why I think the materials initiative is all about, Uh, The materials genome Initiative from the federal government is trying to also unlock that barrier of how it's going to take, you know, traditionally it takes about 20 years from the material that's invented in the lab to the time it's market, depending on which industry you take a look at. They're trying to see how we can shorten that life cycle to maybe four or five years. And it's trying to bring everyone together. Right now, it's not about pockets sitting you know in one part of the globe and the other part of the globe, or even different parts of the country kind of doing independent research. It's a difficult, but the idea is how we can coordinate and kind of pool all this thing in into one database. So when somebody's looking at designing material or choosing material, they can look at the whole landscape and see what is everyone doing out there. I think that's what's going to ultimately unlock the whole, the whole chain of how we actually do make parts differently, not just additive any other technology as well.
0: Yeah, what a perfect way to end this episode. You know, we we started out in the past. We started out with, uh, you know, sintering processes that just started to uh, morph into a more sophisticated additive manufacturing technology. And as you just showed us the future where artificial intelligence will allow us to speed up and even artificially simulate new alloys and new um, materials before we even make them. That is such an exciting outlook. And I'm honestly also very excited to see what you, Ankit, uh, come up with in the future. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of your ideas and all of your knowledge with us. Uh, super exciting episode. And yeah, as I said, can't wait to see what new materials uh, you come up with in the future. Thanks for being on the podcast.
1: No, thank you, Fabian. Thanks for having me. It was great uh, chatting with you. Materials always my favorite subject. and. Uh, I can talk out hours and hours on Lens, so, you know, thank you for giving me a few minutes here to actually uh, give the message out.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thanks, man, and uh, I'm sure you'll be back, my friend. All right, awesome. Thanks, dude. So, as you just heard, the future of AM Metal Materials is bright. And to make the most of this new era of innovation, you'll need to keep an open mind on materials, understand that you can achieve the same or even better performance from new material concepts, and rely on the fact that cost per part will drop significantly in the years to come. And that all speaks to the importance of education. It will help you to embrace game-changing opportunities rather than focusing on restrictions and the status quo. I'd like to thank Ankit for joining us today. And if your company is more focused on Polymer AML applications, we've got you covered as well. On the next episode, Dr. Kerry Bauer, Senior Manager of Polymer Technology at EOS, will join me to talk about how to drive innovation with Polymer AM materials. Until then, send us an email at additive.snag at eos-na.com or leave us a comment in your favorite podcast app. We're always looking for great ideas and hot topics to discuss on future episodes and your feedback is always welcome. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe and rate us in the podcast app of your choice. A special thanks goes out to my co-producers Kristen Eisminger and Tim Moynihan and to Shannon Bauch for graphic design and social media management. Thank you very much for listening and please join us next time for another great episode of Additive Snap.